And the rest of you, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. So go to the middle of your Bible, you're sure to find the book of Psalms, and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Today is May 22nd. Last year on this particular Sunday, it was May 23rd, and it was my intention, my hopes heading into that Sunday that I was going to preach, and uh, after my sermon to say to you all, hey, I'm heading off on sabbatical for 10 weeks, I'll see you later. And I was going to go watch Maddie play a little softball, and then later that afternoon was going to begin my sabbatical, um, headed to the Frio River for a few days. But if you were here, you know that earlier in the week, I had found out that I had a tumor in my esophagus, and so on that particular Sunday a year ago today, I preached and then shared it with you all that they had found a tumor and shared with you all that we knew at that point. And uh, Aaron Doe, Craig Remlinger came up and then we all met down here and so many of you gathered around me and my family and prayed for us. In coming days, I would learn that it was in fact malignant, would do chemotherapy and radiation throughout the summer, go to surgery in September and do all of the recovery and have been doing immunotherapy since. I've done uh, seven of the 12 immunotherapy treatments. My eighth one will be this Tuesday coming up. And so I just want to say at at year anniversary, if you will, thank you for not only those prayers a year ago, but for continuing to pray for me. And I want to say thank you to God for his mercy towards me. Things could have been so much worse for me than they have been. And I told her a few days ago, and she just left to go serve in kids' ministry, but I told Tara on the 19th, a year ago, when we learned that I had the tumor, thank you to her. I cannot imagine anybody better for me than my wife right by my side for this last year. She made a promise almost 22 years ago I, Tara, take you, Mitch, to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others to keep you only to myself so long as you both shall live. And so far, so good. She's made it 22 years. She's doing pretty good. Her example is a little foretaste of where we're gonna go this morning. Where we've been over the last month, we're looking at marriage. Marriage is a big deal. We got lots of marriages here at Redeemer and so every once in a while we take some time in the pulpit from the word of God to encourage us and to spur us on as husbands and as wives. We've looked at roles. If you remember several weeks ago, we said that marriage is something that is created by God, ordered by God, directed by God. 
It's not a human institution. It's a divine institution, which God created and God ordered. Husband, you are the head. You bear the primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, provision in your home. It's defined by Ephesians 5 as Christ is the head of the church. And so we say the husband is the servant leader of his family. And he is to, as Christ does the church, the husband as the head, the servant leader in a word is to love his wife. To lead her, to protect her, to care for her. The wife is the helper. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. And so God takes from Adam's side a rib and fashions a woman and brings her to him. And as so many have said, he takes a rib. She's not above him. She's not below him. She's right there by his side. He is the head, the servant leader. She is the helper, the servant lover. We've looked at some responses in marriage already said that the husband is to love and the wife is to submit to his leadership. That inclination to yield, that inclination to follow the leadership of her husband, to respect him, to follow him, to love him. And we said that marriage is under attack from Satan he desires to destroy or derail the oneness that we have in marriage. And if he can't, well, if he can't derail it or he can't destroy it, he'll at least try to derail it. I've been reading through the Song of Solomon this week and one of the little lines in there is, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining our vineyard while our vineyards are in blossom probably means those things that threaten the relationship, those little foxes that threaten to derail, destroy, let's be on the lookout for those. We pressed into the husband's respons responses to his wife. On Mother's Day, we looked at 20 practical ways that a husband can be the servant leader to his wife and to his family. And last week, we if you're searching for an R word, as preachers are, the ripples that a husband and wife together can have for the cause of Christ. We looked at the relationship between Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to look at two more R's. We're going to look at romance and resolve. The first, romance your spouse. It's a word that isn't used in the Bible. But I wonder what word you would use. If it's been a long time since you've read the Song of Solomon, I would encourage you to go read it again this week. It's eight chapters of a celebration of marital love and romance. Romance seems to be that intangible thing that rises above the roles and responsibilities of marriage. Head, servant leader. Helper, servant lover. 
the responsibilities of providing financially and keeping house and paying bills and washing clothes and mowing the lawn and raising kids and uh, Romance is that thing that seemingly rises above that that gives a husband and a wife a smile on their face and one deep in their soul. I've said it before. When we think about marital roles and responses, we get a few chapters. Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. Maybe some touches here and there elsewhere. But then we get an entire book, eight chapters long, that seemingly is the celebration of love and romance between a husband and wife. One man said, the song of Solomon is a song in praise of love for love's sake and for love's sake alone. It seems to me as I read the song of Solomon and I step back from it and think to myself, what is this book calling me to be and do? Because there are no commands in it. It's a series of poems celebrating marital love and romance. So you read through it and you ponder through it and you pray through it and you ask, God, why is this here? What do you want me to be and do? I want you to be an exciting, mysterious lover of terror. Yes, you're the head of your house, Mitch. Yes, you've got roles and responsibilities. But love her well. There's fun in this book. There's excitement in this book. There's life in this book. There's mystery in this book. It seems to me that with this book, God is saying to you and to me that our marriages are not meant to be dull. They're not meant to be lifeless, unimaginative, colorless, dreary, or humdrum. And if those sorts of things are characteristic of your marriage and mine, just as Chris prayed, maybe you and I need to repent. Because marriage is meant to be exciting and full of life. I think I put this quote up here from Dennis and Barbara Rainey of Family Life. Although romance certainly should involve music and flowers and magical evenings, when we say romance your mate, we're talk, really talking about nurturing your relationship on a day-to-day -day basis so that the excitement, the fun, the spark, the talk, and the passion do not die. This does not mean that every moment of every day will feel like a raging emotional blaze but neither will the wood get wet and the campfire die. That quote from them, I think, if we were to press into it, would, would lead us to at least ask the question about our marital relationship. Has the wood gotten wet? Has the campfire died? The excitement, they said, the fun, the spark, the talk, the passion, have those things died in your marriage? 
Has the wood gotten wet? Take a look at Song of Solomon chapter 1. Just give you a flavor for this book if you've never read it or if it's been some time. Chapter 1, verse 1, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Probably the idea, this is the superlative of all of the songs that he wrote. This one stands above the rest. There's, there's debate, but most feel there's two characters in this book. There's Solomon and there's the Shulamite woman. And they are going back and forth throughout the book. And every once in a while, there are these, this group... Um, Oh, shoot. The, the daughters of Jerusalem that will speak here and there. But she says in verse 2, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Boom, we're off and running. Right? My old pastor said he had his wife memorize that verse in eight different translations. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name or your character, your reputation is purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. This guy was a catch. The other gals thought he was wonderful, and she had him. Draw me after you, and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. And here these daughters of Jerusalem say, we will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Probably referring back to him, she had just praised him, and these daughters of Jerusalem say, Indeed, rightly are you loved. Your name is like purified oil. She then speaks, This is this is cute, this is profound. She says, I am black but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She's about to say, look at verse 6. Do not stare at me because I'm swarthy. The sun has burned me. My mother's sons, that were her brothers, were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Apparently what she's saying is her brothers, because there was so much work to do, made her get out there in the field and work. And out there under the hot sun, it burned her skin. And she didn't like the way that it made her look. She says, I'm, I'm black but lovely. Her skin had been burned. She says, don't stare at me because I'm swarthy. The sun has burned me. And then she compares herself like the tents of Kedar. Those were made of black goat skin. And so she seemingly is saying, I'm like the tents of Kedar. On the outside, I'm, I'm not as pretty as I would like to be. Like the curtains of Solomon, those were beautiful and lovely. And so she says, I'm black, but I'm lovely. I'm like the tents of Kedar on the outside, but on the inside, I'm lovely. But she's got this insecurity about the way that she looks. She's had to work out in the fields. She doesn't like what it's done to her. And so in verse Seven, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? She's feeling this insecurity and she wants to go be with him. 
And he playfully responds in verse 8, If you yourself do not know most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of Kedar. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Some think that the chariot of Pharaoh would have been pulled by generally male horses. And he's saying, you are like my mare, my mare, female horse, among all these other male horses. What happens when a bunch of male horses get around a female horse? They get a little bit uneasy, we might say. He's saying, honey, you don't feel so good about the way you look. But what did he say to her? You are most beautiful among women. To me, my darling, you're like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. So it seems like he he notices the jewelry that she's wearing. In verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. And he says, we'll just keep on going. We'll make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. It may be that the picture here of the pouch of myrrh, the cluster of henna blossoms, the, the fragrance of those would be so sweet and beautiful. And she pictures him as, as she smells that, she would have probably worn that around her neck, this fragrance, this pouch of myrrh, and she could smell it. And she says, when I think of you, I get the same kind of feeling. Verse 15, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters cypresses. Maybe the images of them just out in the garden laying on the ground and they're looking at these cedar trees that are going up and they're just spending time together. And they're just encouraging one another and speaking life to one another. In chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Probably she's self-deprecating here. The lily or the rose of Sharon, the lily of the flowers, they were a dime a dozen. These little lilies were everywhere. You could find them all over the place. There's nothing special about them at all. And that's the way she may be talking about herself here. I'm just a rose of Sharon. I'm just a lily of the valleys. And then how does he respond just immediately? Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. If, babe, if, if you, okay, if you're going to call yourself just a, a common lily, then you're a lily among the thorns. You are unique and wonderful and beautiful to me. And she responds right back in verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Well, okay, if you think that way about me, well, here's how I think about you. There's a whole bunch of trees out there, 
and you're an apple tree among them. You're praising one another. And we'll go on, maybe we'll look at some other stuff. But here in the Song of Solomon, I see at least a few things here. They spend time together. As you read through the Song of Solomon, that's what most of it is, is them spending time with one another. In fact, jump ahead to verse 8. It looks like they're about to go on a date in verse 8, chapter 2. She says, listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. He's not a peeping Tom, all right? You, you would look out and you would see this, um, this gazelle or this young stag. Maybe, you know, you've seen deer outside. They're just kind of, you know, there's a deer out there. He's looking. And here is her man and he's coming. He wants to spend time with her and he's excited about it. And she hears him. Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming. And then he says to her, in verse 10, behold, or my beloved responded and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. The winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. The voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. What time of the year is it? Springtime. It's the time of love. And he's saying, come on, my darling. Spring is here. The flowers, the fig trees have ripened. The vines are in blossom. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And then he says to her, because she's probably, you know, how it can be, a little bit scared. A little insecure. And he says, oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, so you can, you can imagine a little dove that's scared. It gets up into the rocks to protect itself. But while it's up in there, you can't see it and you can't hear it. And so he's coaxing her out because he wants to spend time with her. He wants to talk with her. He wants to see her. Let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet. Your form is lovely. Romance is marked by time together. It's also, and we've seen this over and over again so far, it's the way that they talk to each other. It's sweet. It's kind. They have pet names for one another. She calls him you who my soul loves. She calls him um, my beloved. He calls her my darling, among other things throughout this, the song. They praise one another's looks. How beautiful you are, my beloved. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves, he said. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant, she said. If you keep going in the psalm, he will praise her from head to toe, very specifically. She, in chapter 5, will describe him. I 
this one's fun to read, I think. They're, they're, they're both fun, but especially when she talks about his abdomen. Um, she is asked by her friends in chapter 5, verse 9, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? And she says, you want to know what kind of guy he is? Here he is. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like the bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Any of us want to claim that one, fellas? His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. They talk sweetly to one another. They talk sweetly of one another. They also touch one another in the book both non-sexual and sexual. It opens up, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And she says a handful of times, may his left hand be under, around my back in his, her left hand under my back, right hand. What does she say? Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. She wants to be held by him. It could have sexual connotations to it, but it may just be an affectionate hug. We already talked about them lying underneath in the garden looking up at the cedar trees. Who knows? Probably holding hands. Romance is time together and it's kind, sweet talk to one another and it's Non-sexual touch and sexual touch. There's no question about it, especially when you get to chapter 4 and into chapter 5 about the celebration of sexual love between a husband and a wife. And then finally, all of this, it's just the, the, it's tenderness. You just read it and you go, how tender they are. There's no rough talk no callous speech. They're not hard towards one another. They're gentle and kind and warm towards one another. You get no sense that they're worried about a blow up from the other, raised voices, hurtful speech, or flying objects. There's safety and there's security in this relationship. Marriage like this seems to me is full of life and spice, and fun, and excitement. And again, y'all, we don't have to go to Mexico for the weekend or go spend a week in Paris to be romantic. It's the time we spend together. It's the way we talk to each other. It's the way we touch one another. And it's the tenderness that marks all of that. heard me say, and I haven't done it, but we probably, in light of 
Song of Solomon, we ought to add to the marital vows that I vow to love, honor, cherish, and romance you, forsaking all others, keeping you only to myself. So be great for your kids and mine. This kind of love, this kind of romance between a husband and a wife just inspires confidence in kids. Confidence and security in their soul. When they see that mama and daddy aren't just committed to each other, but mama and daddy love one another. They don't have to guess at it. They don't have to wonder. And when they go to school or anywhere they go and they hear stories of other broken families and they start to wonder, could that ever happen to my mama and my daddy? The thought that comes into their head is, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. Because my daddy and my mama love one another. And I can see it. I hear it in the way they talk to one another. I see it in the way they touch one another. I feel it in the whole atmosphere that they bring to our home. It's a tenderness to it. There's a care to it. There's a warmth to it. Just can't imagine. Fills them with confidence and security. And it provides a model of marriage that they can aspire to. If your marriage isn't approximating something that you would hope for your kids, then maybe repentance is in order. Guess what? None of us can be let off the hook. I found a quote years ago that, because, you know, I'm looking for a way out. It's not my personality to be romantic. So since it's not my personality, I'm off the hook, right? It's for the sentimental types. I'm a football player. fellow wrote a book called The Romance Factor, and he said this, being an artist at romance does not require so much a sentimental or emotional nature as it requires a thoughtful nature. When we think of the romantic things, we think of events that occur because someone made a choice to love. A man brings his wife a single rose in the evening. A girl makes the love of her life a lemon pie with just the degree of tartness he likes. These are not the goo of sweet emotion. They are the stuff that comes from resolution and determination. Thoughtful. Made a choice. Resolution and determination. If he's right, what that means is it has nothing to do with personality. It has everything to do with will. If indeed the, the Song of Solomon calls out to you and me for an exciting, mysterious kind of love that goes be, uh, be above roles and responsibilities to, to something more, then you and I are called to it. So the question isn't, Mitch, can you romance your spouse? 
but will you? Finally, and this one goes without saying, but let's resolve to finish. I quote him all the time because he's so quotable, Howard Hendricks. Marriages today are unraveling like a cheap sweater. He said that decades ago. I'm sure he could say the same thing today. I'm going to remind you what your preacher probably said to you when you got married. Some of you a long time ago. Some of you just a few weeks ago. But he probably reminded you that marriage is a covenant. It's called that in Malachi chapter 2. And biblically, a covenant is something that you cut. You cut a covenant. And what that means is you take an animal and you cut it in two. And you lay one part of the carcass here and the other part of the carcass here and the blood and guts are there for all to see. And then the two people who are cutting this covenant walk between those two pieces of the carcass. And without saying a word, what they are saying is, may God do so to me if I should break the promise that I'm making to you today. It's what a covenant is. It's it's cutting an animal in two, walking between it and saying, may God do that to me if I break the promise that I'm making to you today. That's what we did when we made our vows. I, Mitch, take you, Tara, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, and cherish, and forsaking all others, to keep you only to myself, so long as we both shall live. That little phrase, to have and to hold, I think probably has the, the idea of permanent possession. To have and to hold. You're mine. Permanently. But what do we turn that to? Convenience. The state of being able to proceed with something with little effort or difficulty. When something is convenient, you can stay at it with little effort and it's not hard. But if it begins to require some effort and if it gets difficult, if it's inconvenient, then sadly so many say, I'm out. And remember, Satan is after us and our marriages. We saw it when we looked at Ephesians 5, when we get the beautiful picture of marriage, immediately followed by Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might so that you may be able to stand in the evil day against the schemes of the devil. He wants to take the oneness of your marriage and mine and begin to see it drift apart. 
ultimately where we might be finished. And so we have to be on the alert. We have to be vigilant and we have to work at it again and again and again and again. And it can be hard and it can be inconvenient. It takes effort. And all of that is okay. That's why, and I don't know the history of the vows, but that's why they put in there for better or for worse. For richer or for poor. In sickness and in health. Because there's going to be things that will easily tempt you to be done. To say it's not worth it. It's inconvenient and it's hard. And sadly so many have taken that path. This covenant that I made is no longer convenient, so I'm out. And I'll just say, listen, I think there are biblical grounds for divorce. So if you're ever there and your marriage is struggling, we, we can talk about that. But inconvenience is not one of those biblical grounds. The marriage is hard, therefore I'd like to get a divorce. That's not one of the biblical grounds. It's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. There was some challenge that I didn't expect. She got sick. He's not providing. And it leads to catastrophe. For the kids that are involved and for the adults that are involved. And all of us, I think we could probably say, you know what, but I know a couple and it went like, and they got divorced and they're doing fine. For every exception, we might say, how long is the list of others that you could come up with in your mind where you say, you know what, they got a divorce and they thought it was going to fix everything, but good night. What it created in their kids and for them. What pain. God's better path, of course, is covenant to commitment. That state or quality of being dedicated to a cause. An engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. Yep. Commitment to your spouse restricts freedom of action. There's a whole lot of things you cannot do because you've determined to be committed to your spouse. Dedication, devotion, sticking to it until death. In Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Of course, the Song of Solomon is it's poetry, right? And the Hebrew is, is difficult for even the guys and gals who know Hebrew. So they're doing their best to, to put it together, translating it into English. That's why I enjoy, honestly, reading the Song of Solomon. 
with a couple or a few different translations in front of me. New American Standard. I wonder how the ESV translates. I wonder how the Net Bible translated that. And it's not, you're not always sure exactly who's talking. Is it, is it the, the gal who's talking now? Is it the guy who's talking now? Is it these daughters of Jerusalem who's talking? I've got an old Ryrie study Bible. And sometimes he thinks it's this. And I'll look at the ESV. They've got, you know, we think it's probably so-and-so talking. And so that's fine and dandy. You just understand it for what it is. And what you do is you just keep reading the song. You just keep reading and then you read it in the ESV and you read it in the net and you compare and contrast, but you just read it and you, you, don't let, you don't let what you can't understand keep you from what you can understand. It's much like the book of Revelation. There's so, you go, what in the world did John mean by that? I don't know. Well, what should I do? Keep reading the book of Revelation. And you just keep reading it and keep reading it because there's so much that is so clear. And it gives such confidence of Christ and his reign over all things and his second coming and the establishment of his kingdom and he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, but I don't understand what chapter 7 verse 3 means. Me neither. Read the whole thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. Me neither. Read it. Read it again. Read it again. Anyway, chapter 8 verse 6. She says, Put me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm. Seal, it showed ownership, possession. She wants to to be his and his alone. For love is as strong as death. Death is strong. Unconquerable. It's coming. And it's going to get its prey. And love is strong like that too. It's jealousy is as severe as shield. The word jealousy here probably has a positive note to it. Resolute devotion. It's flashes or flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. That's the only time in the book the Lord is mentioned. And it maybe seems to have the idea in this context that that kind of love that is as strong as death, that that possesses one and that is fiercely devoted to one comes from the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. She's wanting love. Resolute devotion in his love for her. Commitment until the end, and as I say, it leads to commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. If your parents are still married, or maybe one of them has passed away, but they stayed married for a long, long time. If you never thanked them for that, I would encourage you to. I remember I did a handful of time with my parents, both in writing and verbally. Hey, mom and dad, thank you so much for staying married all these years. 
I assume it wasn't always easy. But I'm so glad y'all stayed together. James Dobson, the old focus on the family. I'll conclude with the ultimate secret of lifelong love. Simply put, the stability of marriage is a byproduct of an iron-willed determination to make it work. If you choose to marry, enter into that covenant with a resolve to remain committed to each other for life. Never threaten to leave your mate during angry moments. Don't allow yourself to consider even the possibility of divorce. Calling it quits must not become an option for those who want to go the distance. You and I need Jesus. And those of us who know him, we have him. And the good news of the gospel is not only that he has died for our sins. He has. And how wonderful is that? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Even all of our marital sins, all of our sins, forgiven in Jesus. But he also, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he gives us his spirit. His very person and presence to help us in this fight of faith called marriage. Jesus gives us his spirit so that you and I don't have to wallow in the sins that hamper us and threaten our marriages. Your sin may be anger. And you're just prone to just fly off the handle in anger. That's not good. That needs to be repented of and you need to pursue not anger, but Long-suffering, patience, and love. And Jesus can help you with it. Your sin may be unforgiveness. Your spouse did something to you 15, 20 years ago or last week. And even though you have experienced the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, for whatever, you, you can't extend that forgiveness to your spouse. And, and it's a root of bitterness that has grown up in you and it's just there. And it's not good. Jesus can help you. He died for it. He rose. He reigns. And his spirit, he's put into you so that you can obey. Not perfectly, not completely, but truly and really. When we think about the gospel, we need to have a smile on our face, y'all. And I'm not a big smiler. But Jesus not only forgives our sins, but he helps us walk in obedience. Your sin may be laziness in your marriage. I mean, heck, you got her. And she's committed for life. So what else do I need to do? You got him. And he's a good guy, so he's not going anywhere. So why, why not be lazy? Jesus can help us with that. Passivity, 
rebellious spirit, whatever it might be, we have Jesus. He's forgiven us of our sins and he can help us to live a new kind of life. Amen? Amen. We need to go, but before we pray, forgive me for the selectivity on this because I remembered it about 10.05 this morning. Oh yeah, I wanted to do that. So, went back into an old file and real quick, threw them together back in my office and put them back there. Oh, as we leave. There we go. There's Forrest and Susan over there on the left. John and Bev Stevens. John, you're looking good. There's Hank and Mary. Hank, we would love to see that mustache back. Matt and Lori Williamson. And then Ward and Berta Trulock. Hebrews 13. Yay, that's right. <laughs> Hebrews 13. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their lives, mimic their faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, might the marriages of Redeemer Community Church flourish and be filled with joy, filled with love, filled with gladness and laughter, filled with determination and resolution through the good and the bad, through the ups and the down, through the rich and the poor, the sickness and the health. May the uh, wood never get wet and the campfire never go out in terms of our romantic love for one another, the sweetness and the kindness. And help us to be faithful in enduring and persevering all the way to the end. Till death do us part, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.